Quiet on the set. studio of WHUPLP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo and over the next hour together we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, writer, I hardly know her, author, publisher, teacher, TED Talker, Dave Eggers is with us. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo from the Modern School of Film. Really honored to be with you every week here on Murmur, WHUP, LP, Hillsborough. Also, Evergreen, every week we are downloadable on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Um, we have a website, murmurradio.com. We have social media at MSF Murmur. Uh, Twitter, Instagram. We also have, uh, what do we have? Facebook. We have the Mothership website, which is modernschoolfilm.com. All our comings and goings. Speaking of comings and goings, May, a big announcement, May 27th, we will be in London to speak with Donnie Yen about the state of martial arts cinema. How cool is that? modernschoolfilm.com for that um, Donnie Yen, talking with Donnie Yen I'm really psyched to talk to Master Yen the following week we'll be in Chicago at the Onion Comedy Festival, Christopher Guest and I will be talking about movies at the Onion Comedy Festival, so tons of cool stuff on the road on the road Modern School Film murmur every week for your ear the uh, what's nice about uh, being on the road is uh, we get to meet people who listen to the show. So if you listen to the show and we're on the road and an event, come say hi. Uh, always stoked to hear from people who are listening. Uh, let alone p- that know that people are listening. We're honored to be with you. Uh, send us an email: murmurradio at gmail dot com. Stay on our mailing list. Today on the show, Dave Eggers. Dave's uh, book, The Circle, was adapted into a film. Dave, uh, and he wrote, co-wrote the screenplay. He's also, uh, so he's a lot of different things. He's He's been a part of uh, the screenwriting trade and practice, maybe more of a dabbler, maybe more of an intermittent uh, attendee of uh, uh, within, that, within that profession. 
most notably an author, but he's an incredible advocate, educational advocate, art arts education advocate, and a big thinker. We did a live event with Dave uh, about a week or so ago, and we want to play you that audio from the live event. So what you're going to hear, speaking of live events, is you're going to hear the live chat Dave and I did uh, today. I there's an incredible there's an incredible essay article 1945 Raymond Chandler the great noir crime author wrote for the Atlantic uh, 1945 it's amazing that the I didn't know the Atlantic was that old but the name of the article is the writer in Hollywood I believe that's the name of, of the article I believe that's the official name I pulled I, I pulled that string, read it again. It's one of my favorite articles written about the inside baseball. It's called Writers in Hollywood. Sorry, not writing, writer, writers in Hollywood. And uh, one of the reasons I referenced that this week is talking to Dave Eggers. I'm always interested in how writers, in terms of the literary tradition, works in Hollywood or doesn't work. There's There have been so many great writers, authors. You know, the word writer needs further clarification. When I meet a writer, I always ask, well, what, what do you write? Poems, screenplays, plays, books? What kind of books? Novels, short form, long form. The history of, of the long form author, prose-based author in Hollywood is a really interesting one. And Raymond Chandler... 1944 won an this was his first foray into it 1944 won an oscar for screenplay for uh double indemnity and he wrote this incredible article about his views um on working there he uh, skimming it a little bit with you but you should definitely read it it's googleable uh he said the process of being an author in hollywood makes him quote thoroughly bored makes him feel pretty thoroughly bored uh he 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 goes on to excoriate and alternative mostly excoriate and then praise but overall examine the realities of being an author and also in hollywood uh he said hollywood is a showman's paradise but showmen make nothing they exploit what someone else has made the publisher and the play producer are showmen too but they exploit what is already made the play the showmen of Hollywood control the making and thereby degrade it for the basic art of motion pictures is the screenplay it is fundamental without it there is nothing and there was there was a there was a rough there was a rough entry for prose based writers into Hollywood there was an influx um, of there was because Hollywood is always looking for material uh so there were many writers who were courted willfully and otherwise to Hollywood. John Steinbeck, uh, Steinbeck actually wrote Lifeboat for Hitchcock, William Faulkner, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was a script doctor, wrote some of Gone with the Wind. I don't think they filmed what he wrote. But Chandler as well, and Chandler won the Oscar and felt very ignored by Hollywood. Um, let me read you some of the other stuff as before we welcome in Dave Eggers, because, again, Dave... His day job is being a writer, but he's worked in Hollywood in unique ways. I mean, I think his collaborations are one of the reasons he has collaborated in, in film. I mean, you know, 
the film production doesn't make it Hollywood production. I mean, we, we could split that up. But it seems like, by and large, the history of, of authors working in Hollywood is a history of hurt and disappointment and and ultimately looking at it very realistically. Uh, Chandler's essay is incredible. Here he is talking about being in Hollywood. He says, quote, the superficial friendliness of Hollywood is pleasant until you find out that nearly every, that nearly every sleeve contains a knife. Love that. That's a Chandler. Here's some here's him talking about uh, producers. He says, some producers are able and humane men, and some are low-grade individuals with the morals of a goat, the artistic integrity of a slot machine, and the manners of a floor walker with delusions of grandeur. Floor walker. Floor walker is, is essentially a retail clerk. Uh, <laughs> this article is incredible. <laughs> he also makes a really important distinction that there are the people in Hollywood and then there is the system and the system is the most impenetrable and unchangeable. Here he is. The motion quote, the motion picture is a great industry as well as a defeated art. The men with the money and the ultimate power can do anything they like in Hollywood as as long as they don't mind losing their investment. They can destroy any studio executive overnight, contractor no, any star, any producer, any director. What they cannot destroy is the Hollywood system. It has been tried, but the showmen always win. They always win against the mere money. He offers some hope, which I think was really kind of interestingly uh, weaved into the, into the, into the essay because he doesn't want to seem like all is lost. The hope, he says, is that somehow the flatulent moguls will learn that only writers can write screenplays and only proud and independent writers can write good screenplays. There he is parsing Hollywood writing, independent film production writing. And, quote, that present methods of dealing with such men are destructive of the very force by which pictures must live. If even a quarter of the highly paid screenwriters in Hollywood could produce a completely integrated and photographable screenplay under their own power with only the amount of interference and discussion necessary to protect the studio's investment in actors and ensure a reasonable freedom from libel and censorship troubles, then the producer would assume his proper function, meaning the writers should produce. Now, this is something that really has never happened in Hollywood. Ergo, TV is where it's at. Now, this is a completely different big bucket to get into, um, which we will do in different varying amounts. But it all, you know, this idea of the writer is power is power player. Authors still have power. Prose based long form authors still have power because their material is often, you know, sought after book options or are secured even before book publishing is secured. Often you can secure an option on a book idea. But it is interesting in Chandler's time how many authors were courted successfully to go to Hollywood left hurt. And now that doesn't seem to happen in the same way, because if you look at the data of the metrics of where the where the writer exists in Hollywood, uh, the writer exists in TV, not in film, because writers figured out what Chandler was saying to write to pro- write is to pro- to produce is to write or to write is to produce. So why can't I produce? And where will I be able able to produce? Will will a writer be accepted as a producer in Hollywood, uh, in the in a film um, context or in a TV context? Will 
that's a no-brainer. And here we are. Today on the show, we have Dave Eggers with us. First this. Is that him? Is that Barton Fink? Let me at him. Let me put my arms around this guy. Let me hug this guy. How the hell are you? Good trip. My name is Jack Lipnick. I run this stump. You know that. You read the papers. Lou, treat me all right. Get everything you need. What the hell's the matter with your face? What the hell's the matter with his face, Lou? Uh, it's not as bad as it looks. It's just a mosquito in my room. Place okay? Where'd we put him? I'm at the Earl. Never heard of it. Let's move him to the Grand or the Wilshire. Hell, he can stay in my place. Thanks, but I wanted a place that was a little less... Less Hollywood. Sure, say it. It's not a dirty word. Say whatever the hell you want. The writer is king here at Capitol Pictures. You don't believe me? Take a look at your paycheck at the end of every week. That's what we think of the writer. So what kind of pictures does he like? Uh, Mr. Fink hasn't given a preference, Mr. Lipnick. So how about it, Bart? Well, uh... To be honest, I, I don't go to the pictures much, Mr. Lipnick. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. That's just fine. You probably walked in here thinking that was going to be a handicap, thinking that we wanted people who knew something about the media, maybe even thinking there was all kinds of technical mumbo-jumbo to learn. You were dead wrong. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bart? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy a song. Is that more than one thing? Okay. The point is, I run this stump, and I don't know the technical mumbo-jumbo. Why do I run it? Because I got horse sense, goddammit. Showmanship! And also, and I hope Lou told you this, I am bigger and meaner and louder than any other kike in this town. Did you tell him that, Lou? And I don't mean my dick is bigger than yours. It's not a sexual thing, although you're the writer, you know more about that. Coffee? Yes, thank you. Lou! Used to have shares in the company. Ownership interest, got bought out in the 20s. Muscled out, according to some. Hell, according to me. So we keep him around. He's got a family Porsche monkey. Sensitive. Don't mention the old days. Oh, hell, say whatever you want. Look, Bart, barring a preference, we're going to put you to work on a wrestling picture. Wallace Beery. I say this because they tell me you know the poetry of the street, so that would rule out westerns, pirate pictures, screwball, Bible, Roman. Look, I'm not one of those guys that thinks poetic. It's got to be fruity. We're together on that, aren't we? I mean, I'm from New York myself. Yeah. Mince, if you want to go all the way back. Which we won't, if you don't mind, and I ain't asking. Now, people are going to say to you, Wallace Beery, wrestling, it's a B picture. You tell them, bullshit! We do not make B pictures here at Capitol. Let's put a stop to that rumor right now. We're talking about the Wally Beery picture. Excellent picture. Yeah, we got a treatment on it yet? No, not yet, Jack. We just bought the story. Saturday evening post. Ah, the hell with the story. <clears throat> Wally Beery is a wrestler. I want to know his hopes, his dreams. Naturally, you have to get mixed up with a bad element. And uh, romantic interest. You know the drill. Romantic interest or else a young kid, an orphan. What do you think, Lou? Wally a little too old for romantic interest? <laughs> Look at me. A writer in the room, and I'm asking Lou what the goddamn story should be. Which is it, Bart? Orphan? Dame? Both, maybe? Maybe we should do a treatment. Hell. Let Bart take a crack at it. He'll get in the swing of things, or I don't know writers. Let's make it a dame, Bart. Keep it simple. We don't got to tackle the world the first time out. The important thing is we all wanted to have that Barton Fink feeling. I mean, I guess we all have that Barton Fink feeling. But since you're Barton Fink, I'm assuming you have it in spades. Seriously, Bart. 
like you. We're off to a good start. If all my writers were like you, I wouldn't have to get so goddamn involved. I'd like to see something by the end of the week. Oh, heard about your show, by the way. My man in New York saw it. Tells me it's pretty damn powerful. Pretty damn moving. A little fruity, he said. But I guess you know what you're doing. Thanks for your heart, Mark. We need more heart in motion pictures. We're all expecting great things. I, um, one of my first jobs out of college was working for the uh, writer David Mamet, and uh, I remember being on location with Mamet, and the night before the shoot, I turned on a movie called The Edge. Now, The Edge is a film that was based on a screenplay by Dave Mamet, and in my naivete the next day, I said, hey, Dave, I saw your movie last night. He said, my movie? What are you talking about? He said, I said, I saw The Edge. He said, oh, that's not my movie. I said, well, you wrote it. He said, yeah, but the last place a writer wants to be is on the set. That's not my movie. Um, so today, on the phone with us here in Murmur, we have a writer. Um, he has a new movie coming out, uh, but he's not only this to me. It's actually probably the last thing I think about when I think of uh, today's guest is, is his art, because he's a teacher, he's a publisher, uh, he's a TED Talker, and I don't think he likes interviews much, and that makes him the perfect guest. Please welcome today on Murmur in the Modern School film, Mr. Dave Eggers. Hey, Dave. Uh, w welcome, man. Thanks for taking some time with us. Appreciate it. Sure. Do, no, do, I, I don't mind interviews. I, I'm just usually on the other side. I do, <laughs> well, I do about 10 a week with other people. Like, I'm the interviewer usually, so. Well, I, then let me, let me give you another birdie told me. You don't like to have your picture taken. Is that, more, is that closer to the truth? Yeah, you know, I think... That should be uh, people that are are good at it. I'm just I'm not a good subject. I I was a photographer in college, and I um I know how frustrating it can be to have a terrible subject who doesn't enjoy it, and so I'm the worst subject. So I never want to subject any uh, photographer to my <laughs> your <mug>. nonsense. I don't <laughs> pose. I'm not going to look into the distance and you know and look like an album cover. I. I'm useless uh, for that, so I, I try not to subject anyone to it. We are in this photo glut, you know, um, it, and, and there's, there are definitely philosophically, culturally, philosophically beliefs that photos 
take and don't give. So is there any kind of poeticism to it, or is it simply your own self-deprecation <clears throat> or self-criticism? No, I, yeah, there's no philosophy whatsoever. It's just that uh, of all the things to spend one's time with, that's low on my list. And I think it should be, the photographer should be, should have the, the right to a good subject, you know, <laughs> somebody that enjoys it and uh, can, uh, I don't know, knows how to wear clothes and things like that, things that I don't know how to do. So um, I'm, not, I'm not helpful to that process at all. So. Well, it's funny, we're speaking with Dave Eggers. One of the things, I don't know if the people in the room know, actually, you do do a, a fair bit of interlocutoring. Um, you, I, I was watching uh, the, Paul Simon and you did a cool like Q&A, what's the get off on that for you? Um, I'm always fascinated, you know, we've had to have a smiley on the show. I had a Louis Theroux on the show. What's the get off in asking people questions from your perspective? What, what, what... Well, I, you know, I was a journalist by training, so that's what I do most of the time is I, you know, uh, tomorrow I'm interviewing a, a lawyer who's representing one of the Dream Act uh, kids who uh, has been targeted for deportation by ICE. And um, so I, you know, I, I like asking questions and trying to use that as a way to find out something or learn something that I don't know. And, um, but for those interviews, like with Paul Simon, that's part of a series called City Arts and Lectures. That right. I'm on the board of this group and they, that series sponsors uh, college scholarships that we give out through 826 Valencia. And so I've been doing that for maybe 10 years. And um, so that night with Simon, I think we sent four kids to college because of that night and Amazing. and his generosity. And so, uh, you know, it's not like I'm something, it's not something I'm born to do, uh, to do such a thing on stage. But I, uh, and Paul made it incredibly easy because I think I asked four questions. And uh, <laughs> the rest of the time he explained his songwriting process from beginning to end. So the, le the less talking I do, the better in that situation. I, I, I had Henry Rollins on the show. I literally think I said hello. And an, yeah. hour, and an hour later it was over. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's his specialty. No, I know, man. He, he was a spoken word artist. He knows how to do that. He bet, really yeah. is. That's why I call him Hurricane Henry, because he just blows into town, man. Another, yeah. another thing, you did a really cool TED Talk. Uh, t tell us, what was the courtship process? Were you reluctant to do a TED Talk? Because um, that's really, uh, talk about solo performance, that's uber solo performance. Was that, uh, did that take you a know, while? Back then it was smaller, so... yeah. I think the year I did it, it was the last year in um, uh, Monterey. And it was like a smaller room with maybe 200 people in the room. And um, I hadn't seen uh, a whole lot of TED Talks before I did one. Yeah. And um, so I guess I, I didn't know until I got there really just how nerve-wracking it would be yeah. because, you know, there's a lot of – people that you admire in the audience or they're, you know, especially back then it was such a small group and you could see people, you know, you could yeah. see Matt Groening, you know, in the third <laughs> row or something. And, um, and then they have a giant clock. Like, <laughs> I'm sure that didn't freak as, you uh, out. <laughs> yeah. You know, as big as a table. And it's like the main thing you see. And it's like, a, it's like the, the digital clock of your nightmares. It's like hanging over <laughs> behind everyone's head. So you're seeing that and it's counting down from yeah. 20 minutes. And um, 
but you know that the talk I gave was the same talk I've you know I've been giving a version of that for years just to explain what A26 Valencia A26 National do and um so it was just usually it takes about 45 minutes so I had that's why I'm talking pretty fast yeah. in that uh the TED talk cuz I'm compressing what I've been doing uh you know for years into you know sort of double time but you know I um that and it just shows yeah, I didn't know and TED has gotten more and more influential I think every year the the talks online and the more people get information through those sorts of you know the TED talks and other video formats it, it's um yeah it's been pretty amazing to see how important it, that is as a component to spreading the word about you know what what you know the community at large can do to help the public schools and um we've had a lot of proliferation of the idea through that that talk like because you know there's centers that are based on the model all over the world and most of those happened because of that talk so i i can't uh, be more grateful to them for given me a platform there. Well, that's what we're speaking with Dave Eggers. I think that's what's really wonderful and inspiring about the work you do when you're not doing your day job of writing or your night job of writing. Um, watching a TED Talk with you, there are real takeaways. So I think TED at their best or when there's a kind of actionable thing, and yours was very actionable, and I'm not here tooting your horn for you, but I, I think it works really well. Um, you know, I, I wanted to bring you on because I actually wanted to uh, talk about movies a little bit with you. I want to start with a movie that you've talked about having loved, uh, and I don't know when you first saw The Wizard of Oz. I'm sure it wasn't 1939 at the premiere. We had Salman Rushdie on the show, and he loved that movie. I mean, he yeah. waxes philosophic about that movie. When did you first see Wizard of Oz, and what was it about it that that hooked oh, you in? It actually, when I was a kid, it scared the living hell out of me. That's and, good. Um, I could not see it um, without losing sleep for months until I was maybe a teenager. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't something I saw and enjoyed as a kid at all. Oh, and, um, and, yeah, and it wasn't, it, I found it in a, in a small interview you did around what, where the wild things are, where you mentioned that, how it, you know, how films like Willy Wonka and oh, yeah. Wizard of Oz kind of latch into you as a kid and become some of your earliest memories. And I guess that was the question better right. put. Right, those were two movies that I, um, that, you know, kept me up at night. The Oompa Loompas and the Flying Monkeys. Those were crimes against children that were committed <laughs> by those films. They were uh, way too scary. I, but I was, you know, I was easily scared by stuff like that. When I was a kid, things hit me hard, I think. Um, and I think I had uh, just very little exposure to, to uh, scary stuff. So if I saw a scary ad on TV, I wouldn't sleep for months. I remember... It was the movie Magic. Do you remember that with, with the uh, the puppet um, or the you know it was like a you know one of these um, it was like a puppet that uh, 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 a ventriloquist dummy that comes to life. <laughs> no, was, I don't remember that film. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So it's it, a, it's a murderous. Uh, yeah, it was way before Chucky and all that. Oh wow! And that ad alone, I honestly did not sleep until dawn for uh for months like i would stay up until daylight 
and then I'd fall asleep until, you know, uh, the last minute before I had to go to school. Like I, um, yeah. So (laughs) things like that, um, would hit me pretty hard. So, but to me, you know, as a kid, uh, more so than, um, Wizard of Oz, I think it was, you know, Black Stallion and, um, movies with, um, when there was some danger, um, something at stake when a kid had to, you know, um, uh, solve a problem or get themselves out of some something that seemed primarily a child. I mean, was a child the protagonism of choice? Just you know, yeah. And I think as a kid, as a kid, we do connect to movies about kids. I mean, that seems to be a natural magnetism. Yeah, and I gravitated to um, you know landscapes and. you know, Grizzly Adams was my favorite show growing up and, you know, things like that. I, um, animals and kids. And, um, and I think that's why I loved how Spike approached, uh, where the wild things are, because he had the same idea that it would be a real boy in the real outdoors. And so that's why everything was filmed on location in Australia and, you know, real trees being dropped on real people in, wild things suits and things like that and that's what made the shoot you know incredibly difficult for him and um from a logistics perspective but i, I think imagine. it gave it sort of a grittiness and a and a uh tactile quality that um you don't see as much anymore uh, I, I agree and not to reduce it we're speaking with dave eggers i watched labyrinth again recently and not to compare oh. where the wild things are but i've had the same reaction to labyrinth there's such a tactility there's a there's a scene when she falls downward and there are these things called helping hands that yeah. are literally people in gloves forming like almost mumenschanzian faces but yeah it, it's beautiful that was another movie way too scary for me i uh <laughs> I think it was something about the unnaturalness of it. It's sort of the, I didn't, uh, you know, the surreality and I think Bowie's hair, those two things together were, um, you know, and his eyeliner and stuff, it was all too much. But I think, <laughs> a lot, yes. I, I just, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, Never Cry Wolf was another Ballard movie that I loved. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, I think, I, and, you know, and then of course I, I went for the usual um cartoons and stuff but you know we were in a weird mode there where most of the movies for kids back then were very more very naturalistic yeah the disney yeah. palette of the era was very dark like yeah. the rescuers and muddy and um and so there was a real kind of 70s were sort of you know it had a real kind of grim feel most of the movies and then you know, Bad News Bears was considered a kid's movie. Which Amazing. You see it now, it's so and, and with, with basically an alcoholic, um, yeah. The character is an alcoholic, essentially. I yeah. Mean, in, no, in I mean, view. It, yeah. no, one of the kids who's like 10 years old is smoking through, yeah, throughout yeah, the movie. Yeah, and Tatum O'Neill is pounding beers. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's, a, it's like, you know, Caligula for, for a little bit. <laughs> uh, we're talking yeah, about you t- had to go there. With I had, well, yeah, it was either you or me, man. It's a race to the bottom up here. you own that one. Uh, speaking with David Eggers, it's funny just to button hook that. You know, talking about Don Bluth films before um, American, an American tale uh, about the the uh, immigrant 
uh, Mouse, who yeah. comes in search of the American dream. Watch that movie now and tell me if that writing, you know, you were talking about the 70s lost, maybe the 80s gain in terms of animation, different uh, yeah. subject for a different day. One subject that I want to get into uh, with you a little bit is this idea of literature in Hollywood. I think there's definitely an absence. We romanticize the canon of authors, but there's so many great authors who 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 went to Hollywood uh, ignominiously um, and and were, became either working screenwriters, like even someone like Scott Fitzgerald became a, not only yeah. a script doctor but wrote screenplays. Um, yeah, the he Pat actually stories, and he wrote one of the drafts of Gone with the Wind actually, mm -hmm. talking about 1939. Um, F Faulkner um, wrote The Big Sleep, but these weren't their only contributions, and I'm, I'm explicitly referencing authors who didn't adapt their work. Is there, is there anything mel melancholic, almost Barton Fink-esque, about the history of the published author in Hollywood. And Barton Fink was a playwright, I realize that, but do you know in, the, in that model, when you think of these great literary heroes, were there, was there trepidation when you segued into Hollywood filmmaking? Well, I, um, I came in through Spike Jones, and I had never, uh, at that point, I had never had the vaguest inkling of writing a screenplay, and I had never read a screenplay. Um, when he asked me to help out with uh, Wild Things. Oh, and so, um, But I love Spike's movies, and we were friendly, and I, we got along really well. And um, I thought it was, um, you know, it would be uh, an adventure. It would be a lark. And, and um, you know, he was good enough to come up here to San Francisco and basically live here for three months while we... Or maybe more uh, while we were poor guy, huh? Yeah, I mean, you know, he he. Uh, I I had kids, he didn't, and so he was willing to sort of come up and live in the Castro, and we worked there, and um, you know, we we he he didn't want necessarily uh, a practiced uh, uh, screenwriter who who maybe had established ideas of yeah. three act structure or you know. Uh, and, 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 and so for better, for worse, you know, like obviously a, a experienced screenwriter wouldn't have made all the mistakes, uh, I made probably along the way. And maybe, I don't know, but, um, he was, uh, we, we, uh, we just had fun uh, doing yeah. it. I mean, I would yeah. say that we didn't always work, uh, most of the, well, maybe <laughs> half the time that we were together, I wouldn't say we'd worked really hard every day, but. But we um, we found our way, and I think we had very similar approaches to which movies about childhood we liked, what we wanted from, you know, the kind of raw honesty and that we would want from a movie about boyhood in particular. And also, we both had a real strong opinion about depicting the wildness of boyhood and how boys are, are feral beasts, you know, and they're only, you know, they're half... Uh, human and half something else, and to be able to to allow that, you know, and yeah. not think that this is a kid that needs to be medicated or something else, well, but well, just allow that these are mammals that need a lot of space, and they're allowed to break things and howl at the moon, and and I think that you know finding maybe we just had a kinship 
on that level. Then, and whether or not I thought I would ever do it again, I, 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 I keep on. Um, I, I don't sit down and hope for uh, another uh, film to be involved in necessarily, but it it keeps because you know books are my home and they always will be. But every so often, some new uh, project presents itself and um, you know the circle was another example where I was not involved until pretty deep into the process I want to talk about the circle uh, a little bit a cast a pretty amazing cast um, uh, someone named Tom Hanks uh, someone Bill Paxton actually yeah oh man yeah. Um, he's so good in it too I never got to meet him but um, he, you'll see he, uh, he's really, uh, his performance really, uh, it's deeply affecting. And it's, he's probably only on screen maybe five minutes or so, but um, it's really unforgettable. And it, I think it's going to be tough to watch, actually, knowing that he's gone because he plays a man with MS and he's struggling oh, mightily goodness. with it in the movie. And um, so it's gonna, it's tough to to see now, but uh, it is a testament to how good he was. Just a, you know, it's rare. I I hate to proselytize because I'm usually the opposite in saying how tough and rough and tumble people are in the business. Just a good dude. I I, I remember having long conversations on the phone with him, and he he was a craftsperson. Like I think people underestimated Bill. I don't know why. I just, but he was such a really. He was a real actor's actor, and and it's anyway not to. He not, was good in everything. Exactly, you know? I mean, exactly. Everything. Just really but Apollo good. Apollo thirteen, which is one of my favorite movies, he's amazing in, and um, I had forgotten that that was when he and Hanks had worked together originally, and um, so I know it was probably pretty tough uh, for what? Hanks after he passed uh, because they were they were friends, and they were both the same kind of guy where. Uh, from everything I heard about Bill, is that he was just a very stand-up guy that did what he said he would do and um, went about it as a as a, in a very straightforward way. And that's how Hanks is too. He's like the most straightforward. What you what he says he's going to do, he'll do. He's you know he's the guy that you want him to be. And it was really nice to to be able to uh, you know work on a few things. Uh, uh, with Tom and um, are you guys like going to um, Giants games now? Like you and Tom Hanks? <laughs> no. Do you have no, season you tickets know, I mean, for the Circle for Hologram for the King? I was on set three days and um, out in Morocco, and for the Circle, I was on set for one day in uh, in L.A. And so, it's I liked your intro about Mammoth because um, that's exactly how I feel. I don't want to be on set and getting in the way. Right. I don't want the director to have to think about what I think about things and get in his way. And, um, and meanwhile, I like to sort of, uh, let, let the director direct and let the, uh, cinematographer do his work. And, you know, I, besides which, if you don't have a role on a set, it's, it's the worst it's, place to be in the universe. A, yeah, it's the slowest thing that mankind has ever devised. It's, it's worse than the DMV. If you are on a movie yeah. set without a job, you yeah. know, uh, to wit, when I was Dave Mamet's assistant, you know, my job was him, but it wasn't the set as such. And and you feel about yeah. as useless as can be. Aside yeah. from, I would imagine, as the the author of the source material. It feels more, a little self-conscious in, in a sense. Not that it, not that that's warranted, but I would imagine 
there's a self-consciousness for you on a film set? No, I mean, I, only in that I feel that people, you know, who are, have a lot of work to do and they've been, you know, up since 3 a.m. And then, you know, I float in and at 10 after, you know, full night of sleep and the hearty <laughs> breakfast. And, yes. and then they have to sort of uh, be hosts for a while. Yeah. And it's a distraction. And um, I don't, I really don't like, you know, anyone fussing or, get, or getting in anyone's way. So, you know, the three day, I've never been on set more than, two, three days on anything I've been vaguely associated with. And well, you, one day you, is usually just so <laughs> much. It's just plenty for everybody. Well, and, Tom, uh, Tom Hanks said something, you know, in reverse about you, which I thought was a compliment that there was, they had such reverence for you because of your work on a ground zero level of your, your work in literature. They loved so much that they felt very intimidated coming up to you, you know, and Tom even said that uh, he tried to be funny and he just failed with you. <laughs> he meant that I as... Doubt it. Do you really think Tom Hanks is intimidated or shy? No, man, but, but it's a no different way. set of encyclopedias. And you, I mean, in this, uh, pardon, the, the, pardon the pun, but, you know, I'm not... Actors, look, actors take that reverse bad rap. We assume all actors are stupid. I personally think stupid actors are better actors, but that's a different discussion for a different day. I, I, I think... I could imagine them, man, being, that's Dave Eggers, he's, he's a great writer. No, you know, but with Hanks, um, by the way, Hanks is a great writer. Um, you know, when he published that story in The New Yorker, I was blown away. It was uh, not just that he was good, but he was really good. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and there was a verve in his writing. It wasn't tentative. It was uh, somebody that was not holding back, and there was a, an electricity there that sort of, hard to achieve if you're tr forcing it or, or, you know, and, you know, if he, if he was uh, pushing as opposed to just sort of feeling uh, untethered, which his story really felt like uh, an author that felt free. And um, when people were talking about the circle as a film and I just wanted to hand it off and, um, and which I did, you know, this is James's film because there he, you know, he's the guy that, wrote the first draft and was there every day and making all the decisions. And, and he was always very kind to sort of ask my opinion about something. And we talk a lot and, you know, there's nobody more genial and gregarious and, you know, uh, generous. I don't know how many other G words I can use. Yeah. I, um, but I'll, I'll um, wait if you want to grab a thesaurus. Or, yeah, I know. I'm looking for the rhyming. <laughs> but, Get, uh, yeah. You know, it, I I I um I th I don't really consider this like an adaptation that I participated in myself in the same way that had I sat down and you know really tried to distill the book myself he did that and um does that I, does that abdicate you from the butterflies of a release though I mean you know no for, forget I mean, my forget name's worried on about, it, but, but forget so, about you know, Forget about worried about what you're going to see. I'm actually not insinuating that. I'm, you know, how well it does or how well it doesn't do. Do, do you feel and you're on the team too? I mean, it's it's this interesting kind of schism where you did hand it off and very generously. It's very generously said, but also you're there's an investment level for you in 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 it as a as a work of art to, to a certain extent. Right. I think to a certain extent, I, I, you know, I, I, um, 
I guess I just, uh, because in a book you control everything and you don't have to ask anybody's permission or, right. or compromise or think about how much it's going to cost to shoot a certain page or anything like that, you, I, I, I have all the autonomy I need there. Um, and when it comes to film, I guess I go into it with like a uh, total lack of control or feeling that I need to... Uh, I mean, I, I guess I, I give up all control, really. <laughs> I, I, I do every so often say, you know, um, there's a, I mean, maybe once in a while I'll say, yes, I think there might be a misreading of that line. I don't know. Maybe I've said that twice, I think, to James, and maybe there's an alternate take or something like that. But, you know, you go into it without any real personal expectations right. the same way that you do when when it's your book and you've, got nobody but yourself, you know, that's responsible for every comma and every word choice. And with film, I think you just got to, if you, if you let go and, you know, you can sort of um, be happily surprised by choices that people make and, and happily surprised by seeing some, you know, an, uh, an actor uh, interpret something in a, in a different way. So that surprise and that sort of pleasant, revelation alone is kind of worth it but then you know it's i i i don't take it lightly that all of these great oh, artists I, you know decided yeah. to sign up for this it's uh it's kind of uh uh humbling or i don't know what the word is that none of these words are are quite adequate you know i i think you're you're the ultimate uh, collaborator on this level you know there's some we were just skipping over some of the um uh, you know, the history of these authors. Uh, John Steinbeck, we're talking about Steinbeck before, who actually uh, wrote Lifeboat for Hitchcock, uh, denou oh, yeah. right. denounced the film. Uh, he thought the film was racist. He actually wanted his his name taken off the film. So, you know, right. the litigation of this, uh, for people who are listening to this, Mr. Egger Eggers is a dream. These are dream uh, sounds from an author. A couple more uh, beats and then we'll let you go. You know, in terms of projects you're working on now, I find this, the, 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 some, something you started at the end of last year, we all know when and where and why, the 30 Days and 30 Songs, asking artists to uh, write songs um, within the silhouette of a Trump emerging pre presidency. Uh, now you're doing uh, a thousand days since he's been in office. A thousand songs. Um, talk a little bit about it, artist as advocate. Uh, the, the, it's a, it's an interesting bullseye to put on you, and you're not alone in this because you have a lot of really great artists jumping in. Um, how quickly w were these plans formed? Were they very spontaneous? And do you think these campaigns are really? Ch creating a dialogue within their goal of a dialogue about government or a dialogue about policy or a dialogue about Trump, et cetera? Well, I think, you know, the, uh, the other organizer, Jordan Kurland, uh, it's funny, I just, we just had a meeting about this today, the thousand songs. Uh, um, and uh, he and I put together first a campaign uh, when Obama was up for re-election because we felt like there wasn't much, there wasn't anything like the enthusiasm there was for him in 08. And we put something together called uh, uh, 90 Days, 90 Reasons. And that was to try to get people, rem you know, to remind people what was at stake and what the Obama presidency had done in the first term and what 
work would be left to do in the second term and to remind everyone that, um, you know, whether or not they were the same kind of energized or energized that they were in 08, they needed to um, get out of bed and, um, and care again. And so we got a lot of, you know, prominent thinkers to, to write essays and, um, and some of those were musicians, some were actors, some were artists, and then a lot of sort of activists and, and, uh, and writers. And, and I think it had a little bit of a, it might have had a, a, an impact with a few voters here and there. And, 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 and um, we were happy to be doing something because I think it's this era right now where everyone wants to do something and what is it? And then the songs just kind of came out of it. Jordan is a music manager. Right. So he, he you know, and so that was a natural thing. And, um, and it was really great to see a lot of musicians like Amy Mann, for example, who is such an incredible lyricist, but I don't know if she'd done overtly political. I, I don't songs. think so. That's, and that's because, you know, she's, she's very um, soft spoke. And I don't mean this, like there's something about her songs that actually I don't want to trouble you, but I'm going to trouble you. So it's cool that she jumped in and, you know, Death Cab yeah, for Cutie. Brilliant she, can't, no, yeah, Can't You Tell, the Amy Mann song is really beautiful, really super yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's more relevant now than ever because, you know, her thesis was that Trump didn't really want to get elected and he can't handle it and it's going to cost him his sanity and or life. And, and, uh, and I think that we're seeing that now. He has no interest in most of the aspects of the job. And so, but, but to sort of see all these people step in um, was great. And so when Trump got elected, um, we figured there was no reason to stop. And so <laughs> now we're, the goal is to get musicians to cover, you know, well-known protest songs that are newly ap apropos or even repurposed songs like Taxman, uh, you know, the Beatles song um, for today, given Trump's refusal to, re you know, release his tax. Can, can, can you call it Flat Taxman? Can you rewrite yeah, it? Flat tax man. Yeah. Or, you know, I, Just have Ted Cruz I, do it. <laughs> I think Sorry. that that, you know, we'll find something incredibly uh, horrifying. Jingoistic. We'll find them. Oh, the you, Dave, I have out. a lot of faith in your jingoism, man. Um, speaking of jingoism, one thing uh, to end with, any research on Dave is so robust, man, I, you're, you're inspiring as a, architecturally as much as, like, I don't know you as a a person, but the things you've done, the footprint, that's the damn word, is really inspiring. Um, I want to look at a microscopic element out of my own selfishness. I remember when I was living in New York, going to Kim's video, pulled down off the shelf something called Walfin. Right. You put together this collection of short films, Spike, David O. Russell, um, Miranda July, Miguel Arteta, and you know... I was wondering, think, I, it blew my mind, because at the time I was starting to teach short filmmaking to my students, I bought them all a copy, and they all still own it and talk about it to this day. Yeah. Here's a weird coda for us. You know, you talk a lot about literacy, and you're doing some amazing, inspiring work on literacy in schools, and is there such a thing as visual literacy, and does it matter? And, I, you know, maybe my poetic introduction to the question is, is a bit detached, but those kind of anthologies that used to be available, is there any sort of equivalent to it now? Like, how do we teach and should we teach visual literacy? I only ask that because I'm teaching it, and I want to know, am I relevant or irrelevant? Well, yeah. I mean, 
uh, it's, all, it's all relevant. I mean, I, I got to give credit. Brent Hoff was the editor of Wolfen, and he's the one that, the one film that I found was the Spike Jones documentary about Al Gore. And yeah. Spike and I always thought, like, okay, there's got to be some way to get that out there because it would have swung the election in 2000 had it been aired nationally. And, um, and that's something that even Gore thinks now, if you ask him about it. You know, it's it a way to humanize. Uh, a candidate that was considered not so easy to identify with. But so we thought, okay, how do we get this out to people? And this was before YouTube and, and, and all of the, uh, you know, the proliferation of online videos. So we curated a, a short film festival in DVD form. And I think, you know, to me, I loved it when Brent did all the work and I just got to see what he and his team came up with and, and uh, unfortunately, the DVD, you know, platform sort of cratered, and so we couldn't sustain it. But, yeah, I think that, you know, there's that we're at a moment where this curation is absent um, yeah. in a lot of forms, whether it's news, whether it's, you know, uh, if you were going to try to find the great, the top 10 short films of a given year, you could go to a festival. But if you can't make it to that festival, like, you're out of luck. I mean, it's much harder form to uh to find the best stuff and for the filmmakers themselves when brent chose that film it meant a lot you know and um and he he did a brilliant thing of putting it all together and so yeah i mean i was a i was an art major you know i think visual literacy is incredibly important and uh well there, there is something you know similar as we end with dave eggers um during this busy time for him. Thank you, man, for being with us. But you know, in, in the book, The Circle, uh, one of the circlers um, says that paper is a death of communication because that communication dies with the reader. And it's funny, my niece, of all people, the other day I was asking her about Snapchat. And I said, I said why, do ki why do teenagers love Snapchat? She said, because it disappears. Right. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Is she worried about incrimination? Or are they worried about, are they interested in minimalism? But things are disappearing and people are kind of expediting that. As a man of literature and, and, and a man who remembers how books smell, what about this? Are we in a good age now? Or where are we now with this disposability? It's inevitable, but is there, is there a silver lining for you on the front lines of this? Well, you know, the book industry is healthier than it's been in a long time. I mean, there's more independent bookstores now than there were 10 years ago. Yeah. So we in the publishing business, and I'm at the McSweeney's offices right now, you know, we feel like this is a good time. I mean, it's, it's, uh, as, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's as good a time as any other, and maybe better than, certainly better than 10, 15 years ago when the rise of ebooks felt like uh, inevitable and was going to swallow us all. But now, um, you know, people have a reverence for print, and I don't think you're ever going to replace the tactile quality of a three-dimensional book and how it feels in your hand. And do, do you and read? Then, do you download books? I, I don't mean pirating. No, you you I, you, phys, you you like to physically hold a book still when you read. Yeah, it. I've never read a book online or whatever uh, on a device. I I don't. I you know I. I I got enough screens in life. I, I think to read on on a screen is just uh, for you know for variety alone. It just seems like a bummer to look at another screen for another yeah. however many hours. But you know it's a good time I think for paper and for those of us in 
in this business. And, you know, but at the same time, when it comes to Snapchat, like the kids, they know what they're talking about because they need control over yeah. whether or not they want to have their text live on forever and be, you know, analyzed or sold or monetized by, you know, the, the companies that do that. And I think that people are, young people are trying to take control again I, I, over I th- there. I, that's you know, how I took her comment. I actually thought it was prescient that it was, we, we, it's our information, we're authoring it, we get it, and it should go away on our terms. And, you right. know, I, it, it's more than a fad, as you say, and, you know, the circle is about control and, and you know, impregnating ideas, all, all the beautiful ideas in the book. But I, I think that's, a, that's right. How do... There are there are still there are there are still air bubbles in the syringe of modernity. That sounds like a shitty English teacher thing to say. Sorry, man, but yeah. I think yeah, no, you, it's true. Yeah. I mean, I also met a guy today that create he just created a new network called MeWe, that is uh, it's a it's based on the principle that you should have control over your digital self, and it's it has a digital bill of you know privacy, a digital bill of rights. And that you control it. Nothing is monetized. None of your data is sold. Nothing's, ana- you know, you have uh, nobody else can look at it or, or sell your information to advertisers. And and um, and he's got a Snapchat kind of component yeah. to it. And I think yeah. he's onto something because uh, surveillance should not have been baked into the internet. It's just a very strange thing that that it, that we have to deal with it we sh- the democratizing effects of the internet and all the good stuff shouldn't have come with surveillance and well except microwaves thing. as you know microwaves now uh kellyanne conway as soon as she said it i got rid yeah. of my, my microwave no i know you know when samsung started building in sensors into their tvs i yeah. think yeah the the world had gone mad you know but if without any checks and if we if we don't slow it down uh we will have no sense or expectations of personal privacies or any sort of zone that's that's just ours. And um, I think, you know, we have to pump the brakes right now and think about uh, what's moral, what's right, you know, and um, do we have a right to uh, control our... our uh, do, it, it has the right to know exceeded and superseded the right to privacy. And Pe- certainly it has, but, you know, we should think about this and... Um, there are plenty of people out there that with a lot of power that do not feel like we have a moral or social, you know, societal right to privacy. And um, I think uh, there are hopefully enough people that think that we do, that privacy does have an inherent value and it's something that makes us human and that we are entitled to. So anyway, these are some of the issues that we're... Yeah, just yeah. those are some throwaway ideas from David. Yeah, right. Well, you know, you know, it's funny. Uh, we look back at history a little crooked. We used to, we think philosophers had all the answers. Philosophers merely posed the questions. You know, they had a love of questions. They had a love of information. Dave, I, frankly, to put you on the spot, I think of you as a modern uh, philosopher. Uh, there's there's no more eloquent. I know you're laughing. There's no more eloquent um, person on the front lines of these uh, media based, educational based pragmatic and artistic-based questions. Uh, I wish you the best of luck. And uh, when I'm out in the Bay Area next time, maybe we could do this in person. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you, Robert. Thanks for Thank you, man. Thank you to Dave Eggers, everybody. That was kind of cool. That was cool. (laughs) And it is a mad world.
what I love about Dave and what I love about talking to Dave and with Dave, and you could see, you know, you can hear the the multiple eloquencies <laughs> he possesses, the multiple fluencies. And we need that. We need that from everyone. We need we need a diversity of language, of linguistic uh, acrobatics, and it's not just about art and writers. It's about day to day behavior. It's about it's about treatment. It's about philosophy. It's about ethics. I'll leave morality out of it. But it did remind me, you know, when we look at Dave and and the multiple puzzle pieces that he fits in his. Uh, in his playset, his his puzzle set, I was thinking, you know, just to go way back to Raymond Chandler in this essay, the Atlantic essay, and uh, near the end of the essay, he talks about the greatest compliment that Hollywood, the greatest compliment Hollywood can pay a writer. And this might be slightly tongue-in-cheek, but I think there's value in it. Chandler said, quote, for the very nicest thing Hollywood can possibly think of to say to a writer is that he is too good to be only a writer, end quote. And I think that's, you know, the tongue-in-cheek and the cynicism of Hollywood, but I do think the value in being more than just one thing or utilizing your one thing in a multiplicity of ways is the power is is you know Chandler talked about not being able to conquer system well how do we break the system we learn different languages and Dave Eggers is someone who's definitely fluent in many languages we want to thank Dave for being with us today we want to thank you for listening every week 2 p.m. Eastern Time WHUP murmurradio.com uh, at MSF Murmur social handles we'll be on the road we'll be in London at the end of May with Donnie Yen we'll be in Chicago with Christopher Guest at the end of May send us a line we're on iTunes we're on Stitcher we're on Google Play and we're always around so thanks for listening and see you soon